0: and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Father, we want to seek you today as the God who is. Whether we know you or understand you, you are God, and we pray that you would do for us, Lord, what. In a sense, what you did for Moses, that you would reveal yourself to us today. Lord, for those of us who are familiar with this story, would you remind us of what you're like? We so quickly forget what you're like. And for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, would this be their burning bush experience, so to speak? Would this be the time when they know you as you are? Thank you, Lord, that your love for us isn't dependent upon us getting everything right. Your love for us is based on who you are. Lord, we want to trust you more. We want to follow you more closely. And so, Father, we pray for you to reveal yourself to us. Please, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says... So Moses knows what he doesn't know and he knows he needs to know it. Sounds like Dr. Seuss. But it's true. Moses is in a place where he had sensed 40 years previous that God was going to use him to deliver Israel from their slavery in Egypt. He had had that sense and so he took matters in his own hands. We saw this last week and what happened? He failed miserably. So 40 years being married to Sepporah, raising a couple of kids, taking care of sheep, his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness. Forty years of this, and then something happens. What happens is God decides, to, this is the time now, for Moses to see him as he is. And we're going to see today, this is, this is what we're going to see today. This is one of the actually meatiest, most important, theologically most important chapters in all the Scripture. Because this sets a theological tone, a a knowledge of God tone for the rest of the scriptures. That we're going to see God show Moses who he is. Uh, A well-known writer from the 20th century, a guy named A.W. Tozer, wrote this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What's coming into your mind right now? As we talk about God and knowing God, what's coming into your mind right now? Let's see what God does to bring Moses to a right knowledge of who he is. We're going to talk about four things. We're going to see four things in this section about who God is in in, in God's interaction with Moses. Picking it up in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, now remember, Moses has been doing this everyday thing of shepherding for about 40 years, okay? Okay? So shepherding sheep in the wilderness—you know what? What you probably know every species of plant there is. You know what the sheep can eat and what the sheep can't eat. You've seen all kinds of uh, of sort of natural phenomena take place. You've probably seen lightning strike a creosote bush and it burst into flame. You've seen uh, things uh, that happen that you think, oh, that's interesting, but you've still seen them. Forty years, man, you've seen everything there is to see in the wilderness. And so what happens is when he sees a bush that's burning, but not consumed, he thinks this is different. Moses, was was he sees something that was attractively different. Not just like, oh, that's weird, I'm staying away from that, but wow, what is that? I want to see what that is. And it's important that we see this because What's happening here is God's going to draw Moses to himself using Moses' everyday activities. When we talk about a burning bush experience, we kind of think of this huge, profound thing. And it is hugely profound, as we're going to see today. But often, God wants to make himself known to us in our everyday lives. I I remember having an epiphany when uh, my son Garrett, my oldest son, was just a baby. It was my turn, to t- my turn to change the nappy. And he was just kind of at that place where, you know, when they're, when they're real small, the, the, what they produce isn't that bad. But as they eat normal food, you're talking, well, you know, there's a stank. And I remember changing his diaper and, and thinking how, how cute he was when he made the stank. You know what it's like. You know, go, boop just stinky boop-boop, stinky boop boo boy. And I'm just being a normal dad, cooing over my firstborn son, and it hit me, wow, my God is not disgusted when he cleanses me from my sin. He rejoices in cleansing me from my sin. When I confess it and say, Lord, I've soiled myself again. Will you please clean me up? The Lord says, that's my boy. I'm going to clean him up. (laughs) Now, I I, want to say this because what's important is is that we, we don't sort of make up in our minds what we think God is like. But we also don't think that our thoughts about God are so kind of up here in the clouds that there's no connection to everyday life. God wants to show himself to us in everyday life as he did to Moses. But he sees something. Moses, in everyday life, he sees something that's attractively different. Now, before we go to verse 4, I think it's important that we talk about this angel of the Lord because when, when, when Moses, remember, Moses is writing this stuff down for us. So when he's retelling the story, he mentions the angel of the Lord. Even when he mentions Horeb, the mountain of God, don't think in your mind, uh, Moses has the sheep and he goes, hey, let's check out the mountain of God. Maybe the angel of the Lord will be there. That's not what was going on. He's just doing his everyday things. But in hindsight, he's going... He wants the, the, his readers to know, this is when I first saw the angel of the Lord. This is when I first went to the mountain of God. It's important to know that he was just going to a place to feed the sheep. But this angel of the Lord, too, it's important because it's an interesting character in the Old Testament. Because when we see the angel of the Lord mentioned in the Old Testament, he he's, he's, seems to be separate from who God is, but then he talks as if he is just God. And don't think like big flowing wings, the angel of the Lord, you know, like he, something like that. Think someone who just looks like a man, because angel means messenger. So someone who's a messenger from God, that when he speaks, he speaks as God. That sounds familiar. Good. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But the point is, Moses sees something that's attractively different. And then what happens? Verse four. It says, "And the Lord said, uh, and the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see." That Moses turned aside to see. And God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, Moses is attracted to this thing. He's never seen like anything like this in his 40 years in the wilderness. So he's attracted. And what you see happening here is God is attracting him by this burning bush that's not consumed, by this phenomenon that he can't explain. He's attracted to it, but God calls him by name. And we see this echoed, this is kind of an echo of what we've already seen in, in, in Genesis where God says to Jacob, 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 when Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord's. It's like God saying, listen, you've experienced something of me, or you're drawn to what I'm doing, but now I want to call you by name. God saves individuals. And God was calling Moses to himself. And it's also important that we recognize here when when he says to Moses, don't come too close, take off your sandals, this is holy ground. We we need to make sure that we understand he's not saying this land is sacred it was just a place where, where he would take the, the, the sheep to feed. But because God was there, the land was made holy. God made the land holy. We get really kind of interested in like, oh, why do you have to take off the sandals? What does that mean? What does that represent? And there's lots of kinds of ideas out there, but we don't really know for sure. And I think the reason we don't know for sure because it ain't about Moses' feet or sandals. It's about the holiness of God. And when he's in a place... He makes that place holy. But there's also something here that we we need to recognize, and that is about the holiness of God. Because this is the first thing that God reveals to Moses about himself. He sees, Moses needs to see and understand that God is holy. What does that mean? I don't know about you, but when I think of the word holy, my first response is holier than thou. Somebody thinks they're better than someone else. There was an American sort of uh, late-night sitcom called Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you've ever watched that show. It's a very heathen show, so don't watch that show. But it's funny. And Saturday Night Live, they have this character. They had this character way back in the '80s when I was watching it, called the Church Lady. And she just kind of looks down at everybody, and she says things like, hmm, "Isn't that special?" And she's totally condescending, and Horrible to everyone she talks to. And it's quite comical, but it's also kind of sad because that's how people tend to look at Christians. That's what people think when they think holy. The church lady thinks she's better than everyone else. That's what they think. But holiness isn't about looking down on people. In fact, when the Bible talks about holiness, listen, it's, it's something, the word actually comes from this idea of being separate or set apart or distinct. So when we talk about the holiness of God, listen, we're talking about the fact that God is distinct. He's separate. He's different than anything else. There's nothing else like God. It also means, though, this. It means that he's pure, that he's perfect, that he's unstained by sin and evil. In fact, listen, you need to understand, we cannot defile God. You can't. And the reason God says stay back is not because he's going to go, ooh, you're icky. Don't touch me. He's saying stay back because I am so pure and so good. You will die if you get too close in the wrong way. Holy. When the Bible talks about holy, it means that everything that God does and says is good and right. This reality of God being a holy God is so important. This is the theme for church camp this year. Too much to unpack and and one-fourth of a sermon. We have to understand what it means that God is holy. We have to know who our holy God is if we're going to understand how amazing his grace is for us or how committed he is to our change. Now, what happens? Moses sees this, right? And when when, when God says, look, stay back, Moses seems to have this revelation of God's holiness. And what does he do in verse 6? It says that he hides his face. He was afraid to look at God. See, here's the thing that maybe we don't want to admit because we like to think of ourselves maybe higher than we ought to think. So we don't like to admit this, but here's the reality. Absolute goodness is absolutely terrifying. When we see God in this perfection, when we recognize God who is Really, always, good. It's terrifying. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing. You guys remember Simon Peter, right? Peter the fisherman, the disciple that Jesus calls to follow him. There's, we have this, this story in Luke chapter 5 where uh, Simon's there fishing and Jesus has a crowd following him. And so Jesus borrows one of Simon's boats, puts it out in the water a little bit, and better acoustic, and he's preaching. P- Jesus is preaching to, to a crowd. Yeah, you get this picture of Peter's on another boat, kind of mending the nets. Not been a very good night for him. And so when when Jesus gets done preaching, he says to Peter, hey, Peter, chuck your, your net in on the other side. And Peter's like, uh, Jesus, you're a great preacher, but I'm the fisherman and I haven't caught anything all night. Oh, but if you say it, you're Lord, I'll do it. And he chucks his net in and he gets such a huge catch of fish that he has to Beg his friends to come help him haul it into the boat. And when he does, this is how he responds to Jesus. When Peter saw, when Simon Peter saw it, that is the catch of fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus didn't have to say, Peter, you're a wretched sinner. For Peter to go, yes I am. You know what Jesus did? Blessed him beyond his (laughs) eyes. His greatest comprehension, and he saw in the very absolute goodness of God his own wretchedness. Folks, listen if we can't believe that God is holy, let me ask you something. What is? If God's not, what is? Where else are we going to go to find this absolute goodness? Are you going to look at the person in the mirror? Let's be honest. Think about who you are when no one else is watching. We're gonna look at our politicians. <laughs> That's a joke. Are we gonna look at just our collective consciousness? We'll all got on the same page as something. That's never worked. It's not working now. No, God alone is absolutely good, which is why when, when someone comes to Jesus and says, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, he says, what, Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. He wasn't denying that he was God. He was saying, do you understand how absolutely good God is? He's the God who is Holy. And so Moses is terrified, but God's not done with them. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the the Mormites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression which the the Egyptians oppressed them. There's a situation here where Moses is scared to death, but God says, I'm not done. Because God is attracted to the suffering of his people. In fact, Israel's suffering is what is really kind of bringing his attention here. That doesn't mean that God wasn't paying attention the whole time. And it's important that we see that, in fact, you may not pick it up in English, but it's stronger in Hebrew. At least that's what the the scholars tell me. That there's a stronger bit of language here in, in the Hebrew language that is showing that God's not making some sort of a casual observation. But he's saying, I know what they're feeling. I know exactly what they're going through right now. He's feeling their pain. And I love the fact that that God says to Moses clearly, he says, listen, I'm coming down both to deliver my people from something, but also to something. This is important because we need to think of our own deliverance. That We need to think ourselves of our own salvation. When God comes to us and makes himself known, he doesn't want to just deliver us from our addictions or our corruptions or our failed relationships. He wants to deliver us to what he has for us, healing and wholeness and purpose and eternal life. In fact, this is kind of how we see it in that scene that seemed kind of to and from. uh, In the New Testament as well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, for God has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Some of you, some of us, some of us are way too content just to be delivered out of the darkness. If you're bored in your relationship with God, if, if that can be, when you're, if you're in a season of just kind of bored, boredom and dryness in your relationship with God, is probably because if you have been delivered out, you ain't walking in. Because God has more for you. Don't think more money and fame and all that kind of nonsense you see on religious television. I'm talking about God has more of himself than he wants you to know. He's got more for you. He wants to, he's, he's delivered you into a family that he wants you to enjoy, he's delivered you into a purpose and a calling that he wants you to fulfill. And so, what happens? We see Moses, when God God calls him, Moses kind of rejects. Because what does God say? Verse 10. Probably up to this point, Moses is going, okay, that's cool. You want to deliver us? That's great. You can do this. But then God says, verse 10, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But God says, I will be with you. And this is the sign that you, for you, that I have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, Moses is saying, "Who am I to deliver the people of Israel?" But th- this thing about this, just in the natural, Moses is the great, the best choice, isn't he? Who are you? Okay, Moses. Let's see. Uh, you were raised in the uh, as a prince of Egypt, uh, so you have all the sort of military and education background that you'd need to run uh, a, you know a, a nation of, of hundreds of thousands not millions of people um, and, and you maybe even know who the Pharaohs or they might remember who you are and you know you, you seem to be the right person. you would think that's what you would do that's what I would probably do. I, in fact I've done this to people hey t- talking to somebody would you consider doing this thing at church? I think you could really do a good job being responsible for this Who oh, am I I can't do this. Oh, no, no, you can do it. And I kind of talk about how great they are. But God doesn't do that. When Moses is like really just struggling with insecurity, and let's face it, he failed 40 years ago, and he's just been kind of taking care of sheep in the desert. But when he struggles with this insecurity, what's God's answer? Have higher self-esteem. Nope. His answer is, I'm going to be with you. I'm gonna be with you. See, this is important because Moses saw himself as the failed deliverer. God, I'm not, it's not me. I can't, I'm the failed deliverer. But here's the problem: how we identify ourselves, however, that is, if you want to identify yourselves by your by your failures, by your temptations, by your successes, by your giftedness. However you want to identify yourself, you need to understand it's almost always inaccurate and it's always insufficient. Self-identity is a lie. I'm not saying that you can't be honest about the fact of these are my temptations or this is what I think I'm good at or this is where I struggle. We have to be that way. And man, church should be the place where we can be the safest about that, where we can be the most honest about that. The problem is when we say, my identity is who I say I am, when we do that, you know what we're doing? We're doing less than what God wants to do. We're basically asking to breed our insecurities. It doesn't help us. In fact, listen God's answer to Moses' identity crisis is his own presence. God says, listen, you you don't need higher self-esteem or just to know how great your gifts are. By the way, it's nothing wrong with us encouraging each other in gifts and talents. Nothing wrong with that. Or being compassionate with people with with the temptations they identify with. But here's the the reality. We can actually only know ourselves in light of who God is. You, you, You don't really even know who you are until you walk with God. You don't. I know, I know this is, is difficult because I think one of the things that's scary for us is we, one of the biggest fears that we have as human beings is the lack of belonging. What if I don't belong? I think possibly the most debilitating feeling in the world is loneliness. That is horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Uh, and, and you guys probably know in America when uh, we have one of our big holidays that you don't really do here is, of course, Thanksgiving. And, and, and no offense, but British people just never get Thanksgiving. You just, you don't. You can like it, and and we've had some lovely Thanksgiving with British people because we love those people, and we want to be with those people, and they love God, and they're thankful. But it's, it's just, there's a cultural thing there. That it's, it's, it's hard to explain. Josh knows what I'm talking about. And, and it's not even just, it's, it, I think it's something about Thanksgiving feels like in America, like this is the time when you say, no matter how bad our family is, thank you God that we have a family. And one of the things that happens on Thanksgiving Day, which is a, a national holiday, still many of the kind of restaurants are open, specifically like the Little Chef kind of restaurants, a place called Denny's is open, partly because they sell pies and cakes and people last minute want to go buy a cake. I'll tell you what, one of these times I was going into a thanks, on Thanksgiving Day to buy a pie for a family gathering, and you know what I saw in there? A dozen people sitting by themselves during Thanksgiving. Oh, man, that's so hard to see. You wanted to say, come to my house, you know? Because you feel what they must be feeling. I have no one at Thanksgiving. Now, now, listen. This is not just sentimentality. There's a reality that we were not made... We were not made to be by ourselves. And when we insist on identifying ourselves, I decide who I am. When we do that, you know what happens? We actually isolate ourselves from everybody else. Because no time in history... There's been no time in history in any culture until these last maybe 50 to 70 years where people thought, I choose who I am. Everybody was who they were in relation to their parents, in relation to their community, in relation to their ethnicity. Everyone was like that. And we have this new thing that feels free, but actually isolates us. It isolates us. I'm totally going on a tangent. I need to get back to Moses. Because here's the thing with with, with Moses. God has a calling on Moses. And Moses doesn't think he can fulfill this calling. You know why? Because he thinks he knows who he is. But what he needs to know is who God is. So what God's God's revealing himself to Moses as, as the God who is present. The God who is present. That's the answer to our insecurities. This, This is the way we learn to find out who we actually are is spending time with the God who is present and knowing who he is. When Jesus decides to send his disciples, when the, the, Jesus is crucified and then he resurrects, right before he ascends to heaven, he gives this great commission to his disciples. And it's interesting because this great commission feels like it's being foreshadowed in what he says, what God says to him In uh, what God says to Moses in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 12, what does he say? He says, um, is it verse 12? Yeah, it's got to be verse 12. He says, he said, I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God in this mountain. Isn't this interesting? Because when we think of a sign, what do we usually think of? God says, I'm going to do a miracle to prove to you that I'm actually here doing something. And God says, here's the sign. When it's all done, you'll know that was me. That's not really helpful, God. Come on. But actually, it's it's incredibly helpful because what God's wanting to say to Moses is what God's wanting to say to us. Are you going to trust me? Because no sign, no miracle has ever created faith. It can only confirm it. It can only confirm it. Hey, For the record, it's on video. I believe in miracles. I've seen God do supernatural miracles. I believe God still does miracles today. But miracles don't produce faith. They can only confirm it. Faith has to be produced by who God is as he's revealed himself in his word. So when Jesus sends off his disciples, he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Behold, what does he say? I am with you always to the end of the age. Can we have a sign that you're with us, Lord? Now you go. You go and make disciples, and you will see me work. He's the God. Is present. Gotta speed it up, verse 13. He's also the God that doesn't change. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now he's not saying, okay, if I do I say Bob sent me? He's not think, don't think of name that way. Name means character or reputation. And this is important too, because remember where the children of Israel are. Moses is in the desert. God's saying, I want you to go back to Egypt where your people, my people, have been enslaved for 400 years. And Moses is going, okay, they've been enslaved for 400 years, and I'm going to say, hey, God sent me. And they're going to ask, yeah, what God? Where's God in all this? It's a sense that, that, that Moses knows, man, these guys are going to push back because this has been a really difficult thing. So, so, so it's, it's important that we, we know that, that, in a sense, Moses is saying, Okay, God, I, I, these people are going to be tempted not to believe you, so I need to know something more about you. Because I need to present something more about you than just to say, I saw you in a burning bush. Now, this is important, too, because listen, when it comes to you fulfilling that great commission that we just read that Jesus sends all his disciples on, that great commission is not about us saying, Come to church. Our church is amazing. That is not what we're called to do at all. In fact, I would rather you witness to somebody and take them to another church that preaches Jesus than to preach us and bring them here. Because the message is not about us, it's about who God is. So when Moses is asking, it says something legitimate, because you've ever tried to bring up God in a conversation and someone goes, I don't believe in God. And you go, oh, okay, it's over. Have you ever thought of asking, well, what God don't you believe in? Seriously. you can be gentle and you can be humble about it, but you can say, so when you say you don't believe in God, what God don't you believe in? Maybe they'll say, I don't believe in any God. There's no kind of God whatsoever. Hey, the, the, the conversation's going. But oftentimes they'll say, I don't believe in a God who's, you know, capricious and judgmental and harsh but actually, they do. They want there to be a God that's judgmental, just not judgmental towards them. And the truth is, if you know what God is like, and you can know that the justice of God is trustworthy, and the goodness of God is absolute, and the mercy of God is available, and the grace of God is greater than our sin, when you know what God is like, guess what? You've got something to say. You have someone to talk about. So when Moses is saying, God, I I need to know who you are, he's not asking for a label. He's wanting to ask what he's like. And what does God answer, right? Verse 14, he gives almost a non-answer. God says to him, I am who I am. That's not helpful, God. This is twice now. (laughs) You're not being helpful. What do you mean, I am who I am? That sounds like Popeye. I am who I am. What's that all about? But Jesus, or, or, or God says to Moses, God says, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, now, here's what's going on. When God says, I am that I am, he's saying to Moses, listen, you're asking what I'm like, but I cannot be compared to anything else. There's nothing like me. There's no one like me. But also he's saying, really, and maybe, I don't know, we don't know for sure if Moses get this or not get this, but there's a reality in scripture that we know God is basically saying about himself that he's not determined by anything else talking about sort of giving yourself an identity, we try to do that, but actually it's impossible for us to do that. We're not meant to give ourselves our own identity. But God does and and cannot do anything but proclaim his own identity because he's not determined by anything else. When the Bible says in Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God, that means before there's anything else, God is. He's always existed. Oh, okay, if God made the world, who made God? Nobody, that's the point. And so when God says, when he says, I am who I am, he's, he's, he's affirming that, look, there's nothing else that, 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 that determines me. Also, there's nothing that can limit me. Only God can limit himself. Only God can compare himself to himself. Only God can determine what he's like. Only God can be limited by himself. So in the Bible, some people say, can God make a rock that he can't lift? No. No. But there's other things that God can't do. God can't lie because He's truth. He can't lie. God always does what's consistent with His character He cannot and does not change. And and the reason God reveals himself this way to Moses is he wants to make sure that Moses, when he's going back to Egypt, where these people, his people, have been enslaved by the Egyptians who have dozens of gods, who seem to be winning, that he says, listen, you need to know that I am not like any of those gods. And we're going to see as we go through Exodus, and the reason I'm going to deliver my people the way I'm going to deliver my people so they can see there is none like me. See, God's not going to be put into a box. And when we think, oh, I think God's like this, or I think God's like that, and we try to imagine what we think God is like, we're simply making up a God of our own imagination. We need God to say, this is what I'm like. God will not be put in a box, but I got great news for you. God was put into a body. We talked about the angel of the Lord, this kind of this, this, this person that appears as a man but speaks directly for God. That puts, moves forward to when God does that in a literal sense, not just in a an appearance sense, but a literal sense in the person of Jesus. In fact, some, some theologians think that these angels of the Lord were actually pre-incarnate appearances of Christ before God the Son gets a human body. Uh, at, the, at Christmas time, basically. Instead of that, what happens is God just kind of shows himself in this. L- listen to this, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Some people think that's like what the Theophanies are, like the angel of the Lord. But then the Scripture says, of course, and the Word became flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth that John, more than any other gospel writer, makes it so clear that this God, that the Jews worship, has taken on flesh. And Jesus made this clear himself. John chapter 8, what does Jesus say? To people who are doubting that he is actually God's chosen king, the Messiah, he gets, after arguing with these guys back and forth, he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. He's, a, he's, a, he's identifying himself with the God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. God doesn't change. But there's more to this. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, The Lord, notice in your Bible how it's like, so there's small but uppercase letters. Do you see that? The Lord, the God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, thus I will be remembered throughout all generations. That, when you see that anywhere in the Old Testament, that sort of the, the small uppercase letters for Lord, it is what we might call Yahweh, that word, that name Yahweh. It's actually not Jehovah, that's something that came in the 16th century, but it's not wrong to use the term Jehovah, but that's not what this is. This is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. But it's interesting here, because when he says, my name's Yahweh, he didn't say, just tell him it's Yahweh. He makes sure that he identifies himself. Listen, he's saying, look, my character is determined only by myself, but also my name is identified not just by Yahweh, but by my actions, He says, I am the God of Abraham, the one who called Abraham and gave him the promises. I'm the God of Isaac, Isaac, the one who brought those further, who made sure that Abraham was going to slay Isaac. He said, no, stop, and provided a sacrifice for himself. I am the God of Jacob. Now here's what's interesting. Jesus talks about this passage when he's arguing with religious people who don't believe there's a resurrection. There's no angels There's no demons. There's no afterlife. There's no heaven, no hell. God just blesses you on earth if you're a good person, which is basically what the Sadducees believed. You do what the law says. You're a good person. God will bless you. And when Jesus confronts them, here's what he says. He says, God's not, he says, I am, he quotes this verse, I am the God, this is in Matthew 22, 32. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of uh, of the dead, but the God of the living. In other words, what, we, what Jesus is saying about this passage is that the God who appeared to Moses the burning bush made sure that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had eternal life. They were alive at the time that God speaks to Moses. They were alive at the time Jesus speaks to his crowds because they have eternal life. This is important. It's important because God identifies himself, not just by this name Yahweh, and we'll talk about whether or not Yahweh was a kind of a known thing when we get to chapter 6. It comes up again in chapter 6. But it's important that we see that what what God's trying to say to, to, to Moses is that I'm the same God as I was then. Because this is what God's trying to say to us now. The same God who gave them eternal life gives us eternal life through Jesus. Same God. There's no difference between the God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. Same God. Same gracious, merciful, committed, loving God. Same God. Same holy, righteous, just judge. Same God. Listen. The scripture says this. God says of himself in Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, "For the Lord, I the Lord, do not change." Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are are not consumed. In other words, you should be wiped out, but because I'm still the same God who's committed to you, you're not. So rather than worrying about, should I be wiped out? Am I going to be wiped out? Know that I've already promised you, and I don't change. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. This last section is going to go really quick. This God is also the God who keeps his promises. Look at verse 16. He says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed what you have done in Egypt and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of, the, of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, that's like saying the God of the slaves, has met with us, and now please let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Remember, Moses has just said, God, you got I'm not the guy. Who am I to do this? No, no, I, I'm choosing you. You do this. And what I want you to do is I want you to go tell the elders. They'll listen to you. And then you guys all go before Pharaoh, the world superpower, and say to him, let all your slaves who build all your buildings, who make sure the kingdom is, is moving, give us all a three-day bank holiday. Okay? And God's saying to Moses, it's going to work. It'll work. Now, if I was i to be going, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. But here's the deal. The God who keeps His promises, He's promising His plan will work. It's going to work. We we don't have to come up with a new plan. Church, we don't have to come up with a strategy to reach the nations. We just got to do His plan. Go. Tell. Live. What does it say in verse 19? He says, But I know... God says, I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Hey, it's going to work because God promises, I'm going to persuade Pharaoh. I'm going to be the one who does this. Then he says, and we're almost done, verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now, God's basically saying, I promise this is going to happen because I'm going to make sure the Egyptians are responsive. Now, there's something here that you really need to see because we get kind of caught up with the word plunder. We think, yeah, plunder, that's when you, like, you destroy everybody and you take all their gold from them. But actually, that's not the way it's going to work. And God's even saying it's not going to work that way. You're going to ask, and they're going to give it to you. They're going to be glad to say, here, take it. Now, here's what we know. God's going to use all this gold, silver, and clothing to actually make the tabernacle where he will dwell with his people. Right? This is what he's going to do. I'm going to provide for you guys to worship me. But it's not just about providing an ornate tabernacle that testifies of God's absolute goodness. Listen, it's also about setting the standard of how God shows how how his goodness is better than the goodness that people claim to have. And his goodness will be seen in the laws that he actually gives to his people. Listen to this. Deuteronomy chapter 15. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you That is why I give you this command today. Do you see what's going on? What God's doing in in wanting to, how God is bringing Israel out of Egypt, how he's redeeming them is going to set the tone of how they are meant to treat one another. So that how they treat one another is going to be the demonstration of the good news of God's love for his people and the way we are attractive to people. You see, you know what people need to see when they see us as Jesus followers? When they see us collectively, they need to see a burning bush. They need to see something that's on fire but not consumed. They need to see something where, I've got to see what this is. What is it about these places? You know, in the early church, in the first century, the the secular critics, the, the, the Roman critics would look at... The Christians and then they go man these people they do some odd things but oh how they love one another they couldn't deny it what God is calling Moses to do how God will deliver Israel out of Egypt through Moses points forward to how God delivers us in Jesus and shows us this is why all that we do needs to look like what God has done for us to deliver us you following me you gotta, we don't just have a good message to share we have a great message to live because we're not talking about a God that seems to fill, fulfill our dreams and give us our great destiny yeah that's there's some truth to that but we have we know the God who is we know him he's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ so I'll ask you again what comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you think about a God that so loved you that he sent Jesus to die for you? Is that what comes into your mind? Do you think about a God who is waiting to snuff you like a bug? Do you think about a God who's apathetic? Maybe he kind of wound up the universal clock and he just kind of lets us go do what we want to do. Do you see the God who so loved the world? Do you see the God who is? The God that doesn't change. The God who's holy, who makes us holy so that we can be with him forever. Do you see that? Do you see him? Father, help us to see. Father, please help us to see. Take off the blinders from our eyes break our hard hearts that we might see you as good as you are. That we would believe that you're as good as you are. And then confirm, confirm who you are by shedding your spirit abroad on our hearts, by pouring out your spirit on us that we would know the height and depth and width and breadth of your love for us. That we'd experience you for who you are. Father, we pray you would do this. We pray you would do this in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. All right. God bless you guys. House groups this week. Don't forget to sign up for camp. If you don't get the emails, make sure you get that signed uh, in today so that uh, we can get you those uh, forms, okay? God bless you.